Welcome to the History Guy podcast, the podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel, and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of the History Guy podcast is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the globe. On today's episode, we are talking about two true crimes in the landmark trials they produced. First is the story of Daniel Sickles, unscrupulous politician and infamous for his actions at the Battle of Gettysburg, and who murdered a man in broad daylight in sight of the White House. Next is the Manhattan Well murder, the unsolved murder of Julielma Sands, and how a soon-to-be Vice President Aaron Burr, former Treasurer Secretary Alexander Hamilton, and future Supreme Court Justice Brockholz Livingston argued the defense in the trial of the century. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. The legal defense of not guilty by reason of insanity is actually used very rarely in the United States. Argued in less than 1-3% to of cases is successful in less than 1% of cases, although certain high-profile cases or its treatment on television and in film seems to exaggerate the use of that defense. The defense is actually quite old. It's described in the Code of Hammurabi nearly 4,000 years ago. But it developed slowly in the United States and in the middle of the 19th century offered quite the sensation because the first argument in the United States court of defense by reason of temporary insanity occurred in a case involving United States congressmen and some of the most important political figures of the day. It was a sensation at the time, but caught up in the events of the United States at the time, it's nearly forgotten today. And still, the curious case of Daniel Sickles' murder of Philip Barton Key II deserves to be remembered. In many ways, Daniel Edgar Sickles was the prototype of a 19th century politician. Handsome, well-spoken, and urbane, he was part of the powerful New York Democratic Tammany Hall political machine in the era of the notorious William Boss Tweed. Born the son of a New York politician in 1819, Sickles was the beneficiary of political patronage from a young age, studying for the bar under former U.S. Attorney General Benjamin Butler. Representing the enduring political loyalty of the era, Dan was quickly set along the path of a political career, being elected to the New York State Assembly in 1847. The machine of which Dan was a member was quite powerful. When an electoral opponent of a Tammany candidate tried to mail a circular to New York State voters in 1852, Dan rallied a mob of Tammany supporters, forcibly occupied the Broadway post office, and burned the flyers. Now, normally, interfering with the mail would lead to arrest and imprisonment, and at least the end of a political career. But Dan's Tammany Hall associates made sure that the case never came to trial, and if anything, his political career was enhanced by his felony. This was just one of many misdeeds of Dan Sickles that would have destroyed the political career of a less well-connected individual. In September of 1852, Sickles married Teresa de Pont Bajoli, the daughter of his friend and mentor Antonio Bajoli, an Italian composer and music teacher living in New York. Sickles had known Teresa Bajoli since she was a small child. At the time of the marriage, she was just 15 years old, and he was 32. She was known for being especially bright and mature for her age, speaking five languages. Both families opposed the marriage, and they were married in a civil ceremony, although they later held a church ceremony. Teresa was universally held to be very attractive and charming, and was very successful in society. But, among his other faults, Daniel Sickles was a womanizer. While he may have lied to Teresa about it, he was not shy about it in public. When, in 1853, he sailed to England to be part of the U.S. delegation with newly appointed Ambassador James Buchanan, Teresa was not able to come along, because their daughter Laura was considered too young to make an Atlantic crossing. So, instead, Dan brought a famous New York prostitute named Fanny White, with whom he had a long-time connection, with him to England, to the court of St. James, where he even introduced her to the Queen of England. When pressed by a friend over his indiscretions with women, he wrote in a letter, I have said to you before that I do not deem it a wise course, nor approve of it, nor recommend it to any friend, but I have adopted it. It is mine, and I will follow it, come what may. Sickles not only regularly kept with prostitutes, but engaged in many affairs with both married and unmarried women. 
After returning from London, Sickles served in the New York State Legislature. His political responsibilities and his womanizing often kept him away from Teresa and Laura, and letters from the time suggest that Teresa felt neglected. But in 1856, Sickles was elected to Congress. Teresa, only 20 years old and described as young, pretty, and very stylish, moved with him to Washington, D.C. It was in Washington, D.C. at the 1857 inauguration of Sickles' old friend James Buchanan as 15th President of the United States that the Sickles became acquainted with another well-connected politician and lawyer named Philip Barton Key II. Key's father, Francis Scott Key, was also a lawyer and during the War of 1812, while negotiating a prisoner exchange with the British, was briefly held aboard the British ship HMS Taunet during the Battle of Baltimore. He had penned a brief poem about the battle called Defense of Fort McHenry. Set to music, the poem, better known today as The Star-Spangled Banner, was quite popular in the United States in the 1850s, but would not officially become the national anthem until 1931. Francis Scott Key had a long career in law, including as the United States Attorney for the District of Columbia. In addition to his famous father, Philip Barton Key II, who usually went by Barton, was the nephew of Roger Taney, who was Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1836 to 1864. In 1857, Barton Key was the district attorney for Washington, D.C. A widower with four children, he was often described as the handsomest man in Washington society. By all accounts, Sickle took a liking to Key quickly and helped to ensure that he held on to his position under the new administration. As Sickles was still often too busy to accompany Teresa to all the events of Washington society, he apparently encouraged her to attend with his new friend Barton their relationship over time became intimate. Barton Key and Teresa Sickle started to be seen together in Washington a lot, so much so that people began to talk, but distracted by his political responsibilities and his own sexual affairs, Daniel Sickles seemed not to notice. The affair became more brazen after Sickles' re-election in 1858. Key rented a house under an assumed name where he and Teresa would meet. Reportedly, some of Key's associates warned him of the danger of his affair and the lack of care in which he conducted it, but apparently did not dissuade the lovers. But the affair couldn't stay hidden forever. On February 24, 1859, Sickles was opening the daily correspondence on his desk, and in there was a yellow envelope that included a letter that was signed only with the initials RPG. The letter told him about his wife's affair, informed him about the house that Key had rented, and concluded, Sir... I assure you, he has as much use of your wife as you have. Sickles waited a day to have an associate check out the claim, but on the night of the 26th, he confronted Teresa and extracted a confession from her. The note went into embarrassing detail, including the detail that Mr. Key would stand in the park outside the Sickles' house and wave a handkerchief when he wanted to meet. It was thus not opportune for Mr. Key, who didn't know that the affair had been uncovered, that the very next day Dan Sickles looked out his window to see Mr. Key standing in the park, looking at their house, waving his hanky. Sickles came at Key in a rage and shouted, Key, you scoundrel! You have dishonored my house! You must die! Sickles pulled a derringer from his coat and shot, injuring Key's hand. Key stepped forward and the two struggled for a moment and Sickles dropped the gun. But Sickles shook free and pulled out another pistol. Unarmed, Key cried out, Don't murder me! and threw the only item he had with him, a pair of opera glasses, at Sickles. Sickles responded by shooting Key in the thigh. Sickles was yelling now, attracting witnesses. Key stumbled and said, I'm shot! Falling to the ground, he shouted, Don't shoot me! Murder! Murder! Sickles pulled the trigger again, but the gun misfired. Sickles cocked it another time and shot Key in the chest at close range. He then pointed at Key's head and pulled the trigger one more time, intending a coup de grace, but the gun again misfired. Witnesses finally pulled him away before he could try another shot. This all occurred on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of Lafayette Square in broad daylight within sight of the White House. Some bystanders carried Key away to a nearby tavern where a doctor who had come running after hearing the shots examined him. The bullet to the chest had punctured his liver and blood was filling his chest cavity. He was drowning in his own blood. The doctor asked Key if he had any last messages for his children, but he was unable to respond. He expired shortly thereafter. Dan Sickles went to the house of a friend, a man named Jeremiah Black, who was the Attorney General of the United States, and surrendered his pistol. 
Black summoned the police to take Sickles to a magistrate. At this point you might think things look bad for Daniel Sickles, what with the murdering an unarmed man in cold blood in front of witnesses in broad daylight a block from the White House. That might even undo the career of a politically well-connected congressman, were it not for a Scottish woodturner named Daniel McNaughton. In London, in January of 1843, Mr. McNaughton had shot a civil servant named Edward Drummond, apparently thinking that he was the British Prime Minister, Mr. Robert Peel. It turns out that Mr. McNaughton had delusions of persecution. Mr. McNaughton was found not guilty by reason of insanity and spent the rest of his life in various asylums. The standards created in his case became known as the McNaughton Rules and were used as a precedent in many common law countries, including the United States. They stipulate that every man is presumed to be sane and that to establish a defense on the ground of insanity it must be clearly proved that at the time of committing the act the party accused was laboring under such a defective reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know what he was doing was wrong. Sickles hired multiple attorneys for his defense, including Edwin Stanton, a nationally renowned attorney and close associate of Attorney General Black, and of course, the future U.S. Secretary of War. But chief among Sickles' legal team was James Topham Brady, a renowned New York criminal attorney and part of the Tammany Hall circle who had ever only lost one criminal case. While much of the public was sympathetic to Sickles, the case was very challenging. The defense team used a novel twist of the insanity defense in the McNaughton rules, that of temporary insanity, arguing that Sickles was so overcome by news of the affair that he temporarily was unable to distinguish right from wrong. In fact, the public opinion had turned in Sickles' favor, and society reeled at Key's behavior with a married woman and Teresa's moral turpitude, ironic given Sickles' history of womanizing. The jury deliberated for just over an hour before declaring a verdict of not guilty. The verdict met with wide national approval. Setting aside the relevance of the temporary insanity defense, it's clear that Sickles was treated differently throughout the process. While he was in jail, for example, he was allowed to use the warden's office. His meals were catered by a fine hotel, and he was allowed open access to visitors, which included, for example, the mayor of Washington, D.C., and the U.S. Attorney General. Ironically, Sickles had killed the man who would usually prosecute the crime of murder in Washington, D.C., the district attorney. As it was a federal district, his replacement was appointed by President Buchanan, a political ally and personal friend of Daniel Sickles, whom some claim had bribed a witness to the murder to leave town. Many argued the man he appointed as the new DA, Robert Old, was not up to the task of the prosecution. For example, it was very strange, given the defense used, that Old failed to present evidence of Sickles' own history of infidelity. Despite the initial public support for his acquittal, Sickles then did something that enraged the public. He forgave Teresa, and they remained married until her death from tuberculosis in 1867. The public was angry because the entire defense argument had been that her actions were so unforgivable that Key's punishment was justified. His reputation in tatters, Sickles decided not to run for re-election to Congress, and once again, a lesser man's career might have been destroyed. But shortly thereafter, in 1861, the U.S. Civil War started, and Daniel Sickles would again rise to national attention, this time as a major general in the Union Army, one that, unsurprisingly, was surrounded by controversy. The saga of Daniel Sickles would continue. Now's the part of the episode where we get to talk to the history guy about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. Daniel Sickles is an almost unreal character. Despite so many dramatic crimes and controversies, and many more than what we talk about just in this episode, his reputation just seemed to keep coming out intact for the most part. Looking back, it is simply shocking that he could survive all of this, do all of the stuff in this episode, and then go on to do stuff that has really kind of defined his his historical reputation even more. Um, was he just lucky? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to think so to some extent. I would say he's really two things to explain how this controversy, how his previous controversies uh, when he was uh, in New York and, and how his controversies of the war, the way that he survived those and kept his reputation together is that, first of all, he was very well connected 
And that always made a huge difference. I mean, that's why he wasn't charged with a crime when he was uh, burning the, the the mail in in New York. And that's got to be the explanation for how he gets out of this, you know, bald faced murder right in front of people. Uh, and uh, and even later, uh, his connection. I mean, he's he was a political general. Uh, his mistakes at Gettysburg are fairly well documented now. He's, he still kind of presents himself as some sort of hero. There's some sort of rethinking about whether he blunted the the attack on the flank there. But I mean, certainly put his core where they weren't supposed to be. And they and they took huge damage because of it. He survived all of that because he always had the right connections and so the right people to to defend him. And there's another scandal too that we don't mention here that has to do with the the former queen of Spain too. He's he's something, but uh, so uh, that's and the other part of it that he was was uh, really uh, a creature of his era, and that certainly shows in the part that we're talking about here, uh, where a man could be a, a, a gross philanderer. Uh, and still could come out as the good guy if the wife was doing the same thing he was doing. That was just a different expectation between the two. And so he he was a creature of his time and he behaved as a creature of his time. And because of that, I think he got out of things that are shocking today uh, and even controversies that could have been a struggle for someone else at, at the time because he also was uh, just a well-connected man. It's interesting that probably the biggest hit to his reputation and the thing that almost ended his political reputation was not that he shot the, the district attorney of the District of in Columbia in cold blood in point blank when the guy had nothing to defend himself except for a pair of opera glasses, is that he took back his wife after he did it, and that's what almost destroyed his reputation. And that shows that it's, it's really a matter of also just the... The, you know, the, the way that culture was working at the time. So he was a man of his time and he was a well-connected man of his time. And I think that's why he came out through scandals that would have destroyed other people uh, that ended up, you know, in, in some points, you know, actually burnishing his reputation on things that should have destroyed his reputation, made him even more famous. Yeah. I think that's, I, I like the, you know, we talk a lot about, oh, if we should judge them by their time or whatever. And this is a little bit different when we talk about kind of what that means is that culture was different. Because yeah. I think these days, you know, when we tell this story, what really comes out is like, what a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. Well, stunning, yeah. <laughs> For him to... and But at the time, that was something... I mean, he was a well-known philanderer. This is not like it was... He was, yet, but it also not did not people... come up in trial, and that's interesting. And so part of, interesting. that's part of the yeah. well-connected thing is that uh, he had actually shot the man who should have prosecuted him. Uh, and the person that was appointed in his stead was appointed by one of his political allies... Uh, and yeah. turned out to be not very good at it. And so it's also hard to say, had there been a more competent prosecutor who could have pushed a case about the hypocrisy, uh, that might have had a bigger impact. It might have, you know, people at the time would have, would have thought differently that he couldn't, you know, yeah. justify saying that I was insane. I was so mad that she cheated on me when literally when it was happening is because he was off cheating on her. So, so I, yeah. part of that is, is sensibility of the time, and part of that is that he was well-connected, and so had someone who couldn't bring that up. There might have been other political reasons why they couldn't bring that up, because I suspect that he was not the only politician in D.C. who was philandering around with, with uh, you know, married women and things like that. So it's, as, it's as just said, an interesting he's a man time. of his time. Yeah, that, that, I mean, whether we yeah. should judge him by the period of the time, I mean, that's different. I mean, <laughs> I think he was a contemptible yeah, a... human being, to be honest. Uh, but uh, but he was clearly judged by the standards of his time, and this shows how the standards of time have changed. Yeah, it's I I just the whole thing is shocking. And then the other shocking part is that m most people, if they know anything about him, this isn't going to be the controversy they know. Absolutely, about. Absolutely, yeah. Know I, mean, I, I think a lot of people said that Gettysburg. Yeah, when it went out on YouTube. That, yeah, that that they they knew who Dan Sickles was, but they hadn't heard this story at all. Uh, and I still might do, yeah, you know, was... more. And the, the other scandal is kind of interesting too. Uh, so I, I you know, we might come back and talk about another part of Sickles' life. That, uh, but this, yeah, I, it's funny that the, that he is so controversial that this point where he shot the the district attorney <laughs> in cold blood yeah, in a block not... from the White House in front of people in the broad daylight is not the part that people remember as being the scandal of of Dan Sickles. Uh, you know, and there is, I mean, to his credit, I mean, he was largely the force behind having Gettysburg uh, designated as a as a historic battlefield and and preserving its history and i mean he had his he had his other roles too uh but uh it's uh it's just it is interesting what he could get away with uh and so much so that this isn't even the top scandal of his life yeah by the time by the time he was doing the stuff at gettysburg you know this was i mean i'm sure people at the time remembered it that you know they had lived through it but at the same time that's not what they were talking about they were talking about whatever yeah. crazy stuff he's doing and if you think about the horrors of the Civil War and, and the, the the number of deaths and the and the blood and everything that's going on, you know, 
you shot a guy in in a DC it doesn't seem like much, you know, when you when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths. And so I, I think uh, I think also it was just swept up in events and and just kind of disappeared in the course of those events. So maybe that's when you ask, is he lucky? Maybe that's part of it is that his his scandal came, you know, before such large events that it just became seemed trivial in in comparison. And he certainly, I mean, you were still willing to have him lead people into battle. Again, it was a political connection. He was one of those political generals, yeah. yeah. But I mean, people, you know, if uh, if Congress didn't want to, then he wouldn't have been appointed. But it is it is kind of surprising that he he got to the level that he did because uh, he didn't have any particular military experience or any particular qualification. He just happened to be connected in New York politics. And that was enough. So uh, it's kind of the theme of this episode as we're talking about important trials. Mm -hmm. And so here is a trial that caused, I mean, some significant, it was a landmark. I mean, this was a case where it changed how we talked about certain kinds of crimes. Mm -hmm. And temporary insanity was, was, uh, well, I mean, as you mentioned in the video, it existed before, but not really in the... Uh, we had never really argued it in the U.S. It had and never so it was been tested in the U.S. Yeah, insanity yeah. had been tested as a defense, but not the temporary insanity. And it's kind of a, I, you know, it depends where you are in the nation today, whether there's still a, you know, I was just so mad I couldn't, you know, separate right from wrong. Uh, but, you know, obviously today, I don't think there's anywhere in the nation where you could just say, I found out my wife was cheating on me and makes it, you know, not murder that I shot her or that I shot the, the, yeah. the lover. Uh, but uh, it is, it was a unique trial. And it was uh, and actually uh, in common uh, with the Manhattan Well murder, which is the other one that we're talking about today, is that you had a very big name people in his defense, uh, and that made for an interesting trial. And and uh, it, uh, you can see how when you have, a, I mean, we if you want to talk about dream teams, and of course, you know, we remember the OJ era and all that sort of stuff. I mean, when you put together that sort of dream team, it says you essentially can buy your way out of almost anything. I mean, literally shooting the man in cold blood in broad daylight in full view of many people with you know within a block of the White House. Uh, that you can get off from that if you get the right uh, defense team. And uh, that's, I'd like to think that's not how justice works today. But I mean, we've seen examples where that kind of is how justice works today. If you're connected enough, the law doesn't seem to apply. The difference between this one and the well murder is that the well murder, they didn't know who did it. Mm -hmm. They had their ideas. But this one, there was no question about the actual crime. There's no question of guilt, yeah. (laughs) I mean, he definitely ran out and then... (laughs) kept shooting him and pulling out more guns and he's yelling please don't shoot me there were a lot of witnesses and the argument in trial you know that's what's kind of unique about this one is it wasn't oh he didn't do it it was just like you know oh he was he shouldn't be punished for it it really came down to i mean that i i I think i mean that it had nothing to do with temporary insanity it was just a belief that key having been so blatant uh in his affair with the man's wife deserved it I mean, I think the the members yeah. of the jury were thinking I would have shot him too. Yeah, I don't think it was. I don't think they were thinking about the. And maybe that's what a a better lawyer would have done is focus. Tried to get them focusing on. We're not talking about whether this was whether you feel like this was justified. That doesn't make it legal. And it's, it would be interesting to see. Or I guess there's no way to know if if they would have thought differently if if it had been uh, uh, her that he had killed. Yeah. The feeling I think was generally that he was fully justified in shooting this man who had not just cheated on him and his family, but had done so blatant enough that it would damage reputation. And, and you know, yeah. uh, and you can see how in D.C., you know, maybe that was the biggest crime is that you're you're pulling up an underbelly yeah. that we don't want people to see. But I, I think the jury just came down to, I don't blame you for shooting him. I'd have shot him too. And uh, that's, A little harder you know, to, because, right? you know, they can hide their seedy underbelly and just keep it in D.C. But once it's coming out, they're like, oh, now it's in the newspapers. We don't want everybody to know uh, it's a little it's i think it probably there's still a lot that goes on in dc of a cd underbelly that they keep hidden but i also think that it's harder for them to just get away with the stuff that uh sickles was getting away with um yeah though i mean some of this i mean if uh i mean he he had forced her essentially to write a confession that was uh, very explicit uh i think today if something like this happened that you know it would be the same thing where his defense team was putting that in the newspaper in order to try to shift public That's opinion fair. Uh, and uh, you do see today in high-profile trials that there is an effort to manipulate public opinion on the subject, uh, and so some of this, some of this, you know, still seems like wow, you know, that's kind of surprising of what could happen today, and uh, and you know, most of it you try to hope it wouldn't, but I mean, you would hope that it's not okay to shoot someone today. That that, that whole premise that they did was not okay to shoot someone, but it's hard to say how much someone who is truly well connected can get away with, who can hire the best attorneys in the country. 
can get away with. And, and uh, is, how much of that has changed since then? I mean, it's, you know, I talk about history and I let people yeah. make their own conclusions about the present. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode of the podcast, and we'd like to thank them for making this episode possible. We talk about Magellan TV a lot. It's something that we both enjoy to watch. We love documentaries. What have you been watching on Magellan TV lately? You know, I, because of the topic that we had today, I was kind of digging through the true crime. And so that's, that's what I was watching. I was watching one yesterday. It's called 10 Steps to Murder. And this one is really more about what goes through the mind of a murderer. So these these are not the highest profile murder cases in the world. They're you know, more local murder sort of things. And they're not generally mysteries. We know who did it. Uh, but they talk about the steps that led people to murder. And that's always something that's fascinating. I love about Magellan is that uh, if you come on, if I want to watch something about ancient history and, and you know ancient Egypt or something like that, or if I want to watch something about uh, current events and things that are going on, and it's just got such a broad swath of documentaries, and I enjoy all of those. I enjoy nature, and I enjoy space, and I enjoy true crime, as well as all the history that they have on Magellan TV. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners and our watchers can understand. I mean, I think we're, we're curious people, and we like to learn things. I mean, that, that's why we research the stuff that we research. That's why we talk about what we talk about. Magellan's perfect for that. What I've been watching recently, I watched the, it's called Explosion 1812, and it is about a specific explosion that happened during the War of 1812 when the Americans were assaulting York at modern Toronto. British blew up weapons stores, essentially, their ammunition and stuff, and it killed a whole bunch of Americans. It's interesting because it helped define kind of how the Americans were going to control York. They were mad, and so there was revenge. And, I mean, the documentary kind of talks about how most of the people living in that part of Canada were Americans. They were, they called themselves Americans. They were American-born. The revenge that they wanted to take out ended up really kind of turning public opinion. Mm -hmm. And so it makes you wonder, you know, if... Yeah, it's it's this little-known event uh, during, a, during a war that's not very much discussed, and it might have played an entire role on the future of Canada, a significant yeah. part of Canada. And so it is fascinating. I've seen that one. It, it, it reminds me, really, how similar Magellan TV is to what we want to do on The History Guy. Uh, I mean, that's the sort of thing, the story that we would tell in the history guy. I think, you know, we wouldn't obviously we'd have just 15 minutes as opposed to the length of that documentary. But it, it comes down to something that I'm always saying on the on the YouTube channel. And that is if you like the history guy, you'll like likely like Magellan TV. And I think that it's a very good pair. We love that Magellan supports our channel. And one of the reasons that we love it is because we have a very similar idea of how you learn in the world. If you are a listener or a watcher of the history guy, you can go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. There's always going to be a deal up there for History Guy listeners. You can usually get something like a free month or money off of an annual membership. Try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Coming up, the History Guy talks about the Manhattan Well murder, the unsolved killing of Julielma Sands, and how Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton changed the history of criminal defense. Stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. On January 2nd, 1800, three men stood around New York's Manhattan Well. They were dragging the well with long poles. Within moments, they found and recovered the battered body of Julie Elma Sands, who was 22 years old and at that point had been missing for 11 days. Shortly thereafter, a man named Levi Weeks, who was said to be Julie Elma's fiancé, was arrested for the crime murder, and in the trial that followed, he was defended by not just one, but three of the most prominent attorneys in New York City at the time. Former Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, soon-to-be Vice President of the United States Aaron Burr, and future Supreme Court Justice Brockholz Livingston. The story of the murder of Julielma Sands and the Manhattan Well murder trial, the first murder trial in the United States for which we have a written transcript, is history that deserves to be remembered. Levi Weeks was 24 years old when he was arrested for Julie Elma's murder. He was the brother of Ezra Weeks, one of the most successful builders in New York City in 1800. At the time of the trial, the Weeks brothers were building Alexander Hamilton's estate, the Grange. Just a year before, the Weeks had finished building the Gracie Mansion, now the official residence of the mayor of New York City. In December of 1799, he was living at the boarding house of the Quakers Catherine and Elias Ring. Julie Elma Sands, whom her friends called Elma, was 22 years old in 1799 and also lived at the Ring's boarding house. Catherine was her cousin. For several months, she had been openly courted by Levi, and on December 22nd, she told her cousin that they were to be secretly wed 
that night. What happened next would be the question around one of the very first sensational and well-covered trials in the United States. According to Catherine Ring, Levi Weeks came down into the living room around 8 o'clock. Later, she heard someone else come down, whom she assumed to be Elma, and after a few moments of whispering, she heard them both leave. Elma would never return. Her body was discovered in the Manhattan Well in Lisbonard Meadows on January 2nd, 1800. A few days after a child had discovered Elma's muff, a cylinder of fabric for her hands there. Her body seemed to have been beaten, and her clothes were torn in several places. The suspicion naturally fell on her alleged fiancé. Elma's body was brought to the ring's boarding house, where hundreds of people came to see it. When the crowds became too great, the casket was displayed on the street, guarded by her family and friends. Richard Croucher, an acquaintance and frequent visitor to the boarding house, made himself conspicuous in declaring Levi's guilt and spreading rumors that a man in Rhode Island had confessed to being an accomplice. He may even have been involved in printing handbills condemning Levi. Whatever his involvement, public sentiment against Levi Weeks was overwhelmingly negative. The New York Gazette and general advisor said Elma had expected to be married, but little did she expect that the arrangements she had been making would direct her to that bourne from which no traveler returns. Soon she was said to have been pregnant and killed wearing her wedding dress. Levi himself was not wealthy, but he worked closely with his brother Ezra, who was well-connected. It was Ezra who enlisted the crack legal defense team of Burr, Hamilton, and Livingston. All three were also active in the contentious election season of 1800, Burr and Livingston in support of Jefferson, and Hamilton in support of the Federalists, and so may have welcomed the publicity. But even these talented lawyers had little experience in criminal court. The American justice system in 1800 bore only a faint resemblance to the one that we know today. English common law, upon which the nation to American judicial system was largely based, gave few protections to the accused. England didn't even guarantee the right to representation in a felony trial until 1836, and this arrangement meant that very few lawyers in the United States had any experience defending in criminal cases. They didn't defend in misdemeanor trials either, as most people accused could not afford an attorney whom they were expected to pay even if they were found not guilty. The trial began with enormous crowds ringing the courthouse on March 31, 1800. Three transcripts of the trial would eventually be published, one a few hours after the trial by a gentleman of the bar, considered the weakest of the three, a second by James Hardy, who knew no shorthand and had a poor view of the trial, and one by William Coleman, eventually editor of the New York Evening Post. Coleman's, though not without fault, is considered the most complete. In all, over 70 witnesses were called to the stand, and despite public sentiment, the case was far from open and shut. The lawyer for the prosecution was Codwalder Colden, Assistant Attorney General for the First District of New York. There were three judges, Judge John Lansing, the mayor of the city, and a recorder. The first witness for the prosecution was Catherine Ring. The defense succeeded in throwing out anything said to Mrs. Ring by the deceased, including that Elma had told her that she was to be married. The prosecution wanted Mrs. Ring to illustrate that Elma was an upbeat girl, not prone to sadness, and to describe her and Levi's courtship. The couple were given considerable privacy, apparently because everyone believed that they were planning on marriage. On the night of her disappearance, Catherine helped Elma with her clothes and saw the borrowed muff that would later be found in the well. She had heard, but not seen, the pair leave the house. The door, she said, made a jarring noise when it opened, so it was impossible that they had not left together. The pair had left the house at 8 p.m. Levi had returned at 10. He asked Catherine if Elma had gone to bed and wondered why she would have gone out alone. A little after 8, one acquaintance saw Elma in the street, but because the streets were very dark, could not tell who was with her. Colden called several witnesses who had heard cries for mercy and murder from the direction of the well, and others had testified that they'd seen a one-horse sleigh that looked like Levi's brothers between 8 and 9 o'clock. The witnesses only disagreed on whether they had seen two or three people in the sleigh. Colden called for the testimony of an old woman who purportedly heard the week's sleigh leave their yard that night, but her testimony came off as confused, and his medical testimony didn't fare much better. His first medical witness wasn't even a doctor, but a dentist who claimed to have made surgery his area of study. Colden was criticized for that choice, as the dentist hadn't even seen the body until days after it had been pulled out of the well when it was sitting in the street being viewed by hundreds of other onlookers. The prosecution also called Dr. David Hosek, a respected doctor of New York's elite, and the same man who would attend Hamilton after his duel with Burr. Both of these doctors said the wounds that they had seen were most likely caused by strangulation. 
The defense also called several medical experts, and these doctors had actually been present at the coroner's jury and had seen the body soonest after death. But though the jury had declared a verdict of murder by some person yet unknown, both now testified that they believed the wounds were caused by decomposition in the freezing water, and that Elma had committed suicide. The prosecution did not challenge this incongruity. Those were not the only mistakes the prosecution made. One witness only said that he knew nothing about this affair, to my knowledge. The three boys who had found the muff were declared incompetent, as they did not know what an oath was. Richard Croucher's testimony was also considered poor. One contemporary said Croucher had the mean, down look, which is associated with the timidity of guilt. None of this reflected well on Colden's case. He rested his case by citing a book that stressed the value of circumstantial evidence. By comparison, the defense was well-organized and multifaceted. They called to the stand other boarders in the ring boarding house who described Alma as a troubled girl who suffered from melancholy. They brought up a time when she had said that she would not be troubled to drink a bottle of laudanum, which would have killed her, although Catherine Ring insisted that that had been said in jest. Other boarders said that they thought that Levi Weeks was courting other girls as well, and that he wasn't showing any particular attention to Elma. They even tried to accuse Catherine's husband Elias of carrying on an affair with Elma. One of the ring's neighbors testified he had once heard voices in the front room and a shaking of the bed while Catherine was gone. The witness claimed to have recognized Mr. Ring's voice, but could not identify the second except to imply that it was Elma's. In an odd section of testimony, this witness claimed that he had never seen the room or the bed, but that he knew that the bed was against the wall, as he had seen it placed so. The prosecution seems to have failed to have taken advantage of the muddled testimony. The defense also called Ezra Stableman to the stand, who claimed the sleigh could not have been taken from Ezra's yard, and several other witnesses who claimed the sleigh could not have made it to that well in the dark, notwithstanding the fact that there were actually sleigh marks found at the site. Colden, again, let this go without comment. The most important witness for the defense was Levi's brother Ezra, who testified that between eight and nine, Levi had been at his home discussing the next day's business with company, leaving only a scant twenty minutes unaccounted for. Not enough time for Levi to have killed Elma and returned to the boarding house. The defense claimed that Elma had killed herself. They attacked her character, describing her as sad and lonely. They claimed that she often lied about where she went at night. Their doctors seemed more credible than Colden's doctors, and it, it didn't help that the witnesses at the scene disagreed with each other. One, for example, said that the hose on her leg had been torn off, while another said that it simply had a hole in it. Several argued that the collarbone had been broken, but the coroner's jury disagreed. There was one thing, though, upon which all of the medical experts did agree. Despite all the rumors, Elma had not been pregnant. The most troubling piece of evidence brought to light in the trial was a single sentence allegedly spoken by Levi after the body had been discovered. When he learned the body had been found, he said, Is it the Manhattan well she was found in? Testimony from witnesses seemed to establish that Levi had not known that the muff had been found, and so onlookers wondered how he had guessed where the body had been discovered. The prosecution, however, again said nothing, and Levi himself did not take the stand to explain. The most retold and dramatic part of the trial likely didn't even happen. The transcript describes a witness on the stand who said a man had entered his shop to gossip about Levi's guilt. At that point, someone from the defense, it is not written who, held a candle closer to Richard Croucher's face, and the witness identified him as the man. Later, both Hamilton and Burr would claim credit for this moment, and the story took on a legendary quality. Burr's biographer wrote that Burr held a candelabra to Croucher's face and cried, Behold the murderer, gentlemen! But Hamilton's son, John Church, wrote that the trial was a Herculean task and that only his father's logical powers could conquer it. In his telling, Hamilton placed candles on either side of the stand as Crutcher testified to fix on him a piercing eye. When the prosecution protested, Hamilton allegedly answered, I have special reasons, reasons that when the real culprit is detected and placed before the court, will be understood. All of that theatricality, which was described later, was certainly apocryphal, and it all stemmed from a brief moment when Croucher was merely identified as the man who had been spreading rumors. No matter how unlikable or unattractive he was, he was not the murderer. He had an alibi for that night. He'd been at a birthday party among witnesses. By the time the defense read their closing statement, the trial had dragged on for two whole days, much longer than anticipated. The transcript isn't clear, but after some discussion, Judge Lansing chose not to reconvene in the morning to summarize the cases, and instead offered a short speech in which, the public accused, he endorsed the defense to the jury. 
The court were unanimously of the opinion that the proof was insufficient to warrant a verdict against Levi Weeks. With that instruction, the jury was gone for just five minutes before they returned with the verdict of not guilty. The public was in an uproar. Her murderer yet lives, but let him tremble with horror at the vengeance that inevitably awaits him, said one of the ring's neighbors. Meanwhile, newspapers all over the city praised the balance and fair trial and lauded Levi Weeks as a victim of the mob. The first transcript of the trial, released only hours after the verdict, argued that Levi Weeks' face was one of perfect artlessness where guilt could never have lurked. Elma was described as a trollop. Coleman's report is considered the first attempt following the revolution to make a verbatim report of a criminal trial, and therefore is a landmark in American justice. Coleman disparaged the other two reports for mistakes and omissions, and unlike them, made no commentary on the verdict or on Levi. Somehow this upset Ezra Weeks, who offered Coleman $500 to alter it. Coleman refused, and Ezra then offered to buy out the entire run of the transcript. Coleman answered that he could not be bought for all the money in New York City. This attempt at bribery brings into question the outpouring of support from the newspapers, and gives an unsavory appearance to the admissions and mistakes of the other transcripts. In the century since, the story has been told and retold with varying degrees of accuracy. Unfortunately, Elma is often described as promiscuous or even a prostitute. The well, which still exists inside a clothing store at 129 Spring Street in Soho, is believed by some to be haunted by Elma's ghost. Levi Weeks fled New York, eventually settling down in Natchez, Mississippi, where he had a family and designed the Auburn Mansion, now a National Historic Landmark. The Manhattan Well murder trial is one of the earliest opportunities to examine the criminal justice system in the United States. In 1800, witnesses were encouraged to tell just a free-flowing narrative from their perspective to be interrupted by both the prosecution and the defense as necessary. This is a, an example of the development of criminal defense attorneys and the right of the accused to competent counsel. Much has changed since in law and precedent, and certainly the collection and presentation of evidence has changed dramatically since, and that might have made a difference in this trial. After Levi Weeks' acquittal, no other suspect was ever seriously identified. Levi Weeks died in Natchez, Mississippi in 1819 at the age of 43. So it's interesting to me that even when we talk about like really old crimes like the Manhattan Well murder that happened you know, 200 years ago, um, the questions are still the same as unsolved ones today. Why didn't the police do more? Why didn't they look harder? And how, how did the criminal get away? Because even after the whole trial, I mean, even if Levi Weeks wasn't the guy, nobody was ever charged or convicted well charged but no, not convicted of the crime and so we don't know who killed her and it's it's i think that that really resonates and i i do wonder i mean we're we connect these with all these true crime episodes all these true crime podcasts today you know partially i think that the reason that they're popular is because they're unsolved and people like to think that they can go do that sort of research after and that's part of you know why we are so obsessed with them today is because it's you know you have this feeling like you still want to seek justice and so you uh you you the people study these old historic crimes because they want to see can i pick some detail out that was missed at the time that might offer me a theory that might you know bring this to a circle because it was left you know the circle was left unclosed yeah and that's this one this one's very good representation of that because you want to think that oh I mean, we have all these facts, and yet one of the problems is that none of them seem to come up in the trial, and a lot of the stuff that seems questionable or like that should have been investigated doesn't seem to have been. It's another case where we see this happen in modern cases all the time, where the police seem to have kind of found their guy, and they don't look for anybody else, and they focus, they focus all of their investigations on him, and so... When we look back at this, all we can do is take the evidence that they've given us because we can't, I mean, none of these scenes exist anymore. The well is, it, it's still in some basement someplace. Yes, but... Strangely, the well still exists. <laughs> it's hard to imagine there's any evidence in the well. But it, it is interesting that you could still go see uh, the Manhattan well. It, well I, I mean, do understand at the time that uh, this was uh, when police work was very rudimentary. And uh, we had a really interesting episode about Calvin Goddard, who was this, this forensic scientist who uh, researched the St. Valentine's Day massacre. 
and uh, even you know even then into the into the 1920s and 30s you know we, there was no ballistics there were no fingerprints there was no so you know obviously you're going to run a dna sequence on you know who had gotten yeah. stuff on her scarf uh, so it's it's amazing that they you know they allowed the body to sort of sit out and decompose before they had a coroner's inquiry and all sorts of things that they did. They clearly were trying to manipulate the public on both sides, which you know would would lead to no fair trial. But I mean, there just weren't procedures and standards and things set up to truly understand. It wasn't. It really wasn't uh, for many decades before New York would have what you would call a professional police force, yeah. where there was anybody who could actually do you know real real research and real police work and, and that sort of thing. So part of that is simply it was a it was a different time and we put so much more effort now into trying to achieve justice. And that's partly because of trials like this one, which taught us that what we had was simply inadequate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the assumption was that a jury would just be able to find something out from the wisdom. So here what you have is the sort of case is there's, you know, powerful circumstantial evidence, but I mean the bottom line is not enough evidence to convict a, convince a jury. Yeah. You know, beyond a reasonable doubt that it couldn't have been something or someone else. And, and that, that happens. I think there's probably lots of cases today where the police are quite confident that they have the actual criminal, but they simply don't have enough evidence to prove that. Yeah. And it's hard to, I mean, today, you know, there's stuff, there's evidence that can be suppressed and stuff like that and rules about how we collect information. And so some of the stuff, I mean, they talk about in this, in this trial where they, where we had the, uh, the sleigh the sleigh tracks and who how many people were on the sleigh and all this all these various things that could be interesting if there's re we really don't know enough about them to be sure and they didn't mm -hmm. we didn't get more investigation and that's i mean that's the that's mm -hmm. the time um there certainly was a lot of circumstantial evidence and it's it is shocking that uh to be honest that levi was able to get off of it so so completely mm -hmm. because of how much circumstantial evidence there was but they i mean it is but i mean even if you even if you look at the body and again we very little for forensic science yeah. at the time i mean they if there was a, a counter theory the biggest counter theory was that disappointed to find out that she wasn't getting engaged or wasn't the only person that he was courting that she threw herself down the well yeah and they're simply, you know, at the, the the position of the body, the amount of decay that had occurred, decomposition that occurred before, uh, it would be very difficult for any sort of coroner to determine for sure that this was, you know, a strangulation or as opposed to a suicide. And so, I, I mean, part of that just was sometimes, you know, there's not enough evidence. So even, I mean, there was circ circumstantial evidence, but I mean, there were, you know, there were limits in the circumstantial evidence. There were people saying that Slay had not been out that night. And if I'd been, you know, I was there, I would have seen if it had been out or whatever. Uh, so, I mean, it, it just, it was one of those cases of, of doubt, you know, and I don't know in a modern sense, I mean, we might have closed circuit television and all sorts of stuff, but I mean, this could still certainly happen today oh, yeah. uh, where they find a body and they have lots of suspicion and, 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 but uh, uh, simply don't have, you know, the piece of evidence that's necessary for a jury to say, I'm going to, I'm going to convict the person. And, you know, I, 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 I hate to bring this up, but I mean, you never you never saw the police looking for the real murderer uh, of Nicole Wallace Simpson. Right. I no, mean, they picked the one guy. And so if, if you know, if Nicole Brown Simpson, yeah. sorry. Yeah. If OJ yeah, was, they were the guy, sure police knew who who did it. And yeah, and, and they they lost in the trial, but they didn't think there was another person out no. there to track down. Uh, and uh, and that's just what happened here, too, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would suppose that there is a possibility that it was suicide. I mean, I, you know, I don't I mean, it's hard to we're going back so far. It's hard to say. But we know that, you know, in the middle of the trial, this dramatic moment in the middle of the trial, you know, they hold up a candle and say, you know, behold, the killer. Uh, that's a person that we knew was not the killer. Uh, and uh, I, the point there was to say that all their witnesses hadn't really seen anything. I think it wasn't to accuse him of killing. But I mean, it shows uh it shows, you know, how easily you can establish doubt in the in yeah. the minds of the jury, and and uh, that's just how how limited the evidence was. Well, and like and like Daniel Sickles, I and I think maybe even more so than Daniel Sickles, the the concept of criminal defense, it yeah. was nothing like it was today. They had they had. I mean, this was essentially kind of the beginning of it. And in terms of what we have in the future, I mean, this was the first time we had a transcript. So we, we, we're not even 100% mm -hmm. sure exactly how, you know, trials went before this. And so, and this one was, mm -hmm. so this one was a huge, but it was also, I mean, the brilliance of the defense attorneys and they yeah, were, absolutely. they were good. Yeah. It's one of the interesting things about the trial. You know, uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr were brilliant men. They were brilliant speakers. They were, they were, there's a reason that they had the role yeah. that they had in the foundation of the nation. Uh, and that, that shows here. 
uh, and that's uh, you know it's it's compelling and and uh, I think that the uh, the prosecution was simply yeah, outmatched yeah, just outclassed and uh, that you know again if you can afford the dream team uh, and especially at a time when you know there was less in terms of police work there was probably less thought in terms of prosecution and any of that sort of stuff I sincerely doubt that the prosecution had ever faced someone uh, quite as capable of making an argument as they had in that particular case so I mean was that case ever going to be winnable it was going to be an awfully hard case to win on circumstantial evidence, uh, given the quality of the defense team that was involved. So you could have had someone in there making this big deal on how we how we prosecute criminals. But the, the fact is we had someone who wasn't able to just invent essentially mm-hmm. new ways to prosecute on the on the spot. Whereas, I mean, that's what that's what Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton were able to do is really kind of define what criminal defense would be. And, uh, I mean, he, the other guy was just didn't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of, you know, trying to convince the jury, mm-hmm. there's quite a bit that seems that we can look at now. And we're like, well, why didn't any of this come up? Why weren't, why didn't they talk about the inconsistencies in Levi Weeks' story? And you can't necessarily trust, uh, w- there's lots of accusations now that, you know, uh, Levi and his brother were, Ezra, were bribing people. And so the coroner's inquest says one thing, and then they come in later, and they seem to say something different. No one mm-hmm. brings that up. And today it's like, oh, that's that seems almost criminal not to bring that up. But at the time, there, there were no rules. So he doesn't bring it up. And even if it was bribery, there was the jury never had mm-hmm. any, any real reason to believe that. And also, how do we necessarily ex- accept the brother's word for, for Levi's alibi? Well, I mean, still today, uh, yeah. depending on the evidence, uh, an alibi is going to depend upon the credibility of the person that's testifying. And some of yeah. the most important witnesses for the prosecution were not very good witnesses. And so you can see how a jury might not might not want to listen to that. I mean, they had to remove uh, Why'd you even call him in? some boys from it because they couldn't even understand the oath. Uh, and the prosecution brought a guy in to testify that he hadn't seen anything and he didn't know why he was there. One of the guys that they were using as a, as a primary ex medical expert was actually a dentist uh, who'd only heard about the body. And I mean, it's it's so uh, sometimes it just comes down to who's more credible. So I guess the question is, could Ezra Weeks, who had you know a lot of reputation, could he and, come in and sit on the stand, and they would simply find him more credible? Uh, and maybe you know part of the reputation was that he was a he was a good liar. It's, it's hard to say. And that- that might be true. I mean, that might be true today is that even yeah. though it's the brother and people are like, oh, well, you know, of course he's going to defend his brother. That might not be enough for mm-hmm. them to say, well, <laughs> he's because mm-hmm. he's he's if he's a trustworthy guy mm-hmm. and and they were I mean, these were not people who seemed seedy yeah. uh, Levi either. And so that was and, and they were able to yeah they didn't they didn't look like murderers and i i think that yeah and that was kind of the point with the candle too this guy looks like yeah. a murderer these guys don't look like murderers uh and I, you know i think that probably can still play a role i'm not a i don't do you know <laughs> criminal law i mean i don't think anyone's to... gonna in a dark courtroom bring up a candle to somebody's face quite but i mean they might we see it on on tv all the time where you know they're like well you know point at the person they point at the, somebody in the crowd or something like that it's like <gasps> <laughs> yeah and well i mean this isn't an episode of perry mason but it is uh no right this uh, didn't you, really you happen you can see but... you know how they how they uh could easily convince the jury that these guys are upstanding citizens and they're being accused by people who yeah. aren't upstanding citizens uh and uh and you know you have no one who actually saw the crime and i mean i can you can see how that comes around and i you know another another possible theory is that they uh that they hired or had someone commit this murder and that, you know is how they could do the defense that they and did. they never did talk about and, that uh, and you know who who would know i mean so uh, it's it's interesting again because it's unsolved, and it's interesting again because you want to try to say could I th- you know find some other piece of evidence you know that that it but you know if it wasn't uh, Levi or his brother on the motive that they didn't want to be tied to this woman that they thought was not you know socially to their level, uh, I, then who else did it? Who else had motive? And and uh, you know there's there's a reason no one else was yeah, ever. We, we don't seem to have. I mean, if there was somebody else, we don't seem to have any evidence of that. Yeah, yeah, that was never that was never presented any sort of counter argument there. And and again, I wouldn't wholly discount the possibility that it was that you know that she threw herself down. Regardless the well, of I what think, her but, of the fact that she didn't seem suicidal, 
right? Because I mean, it would have been well. But I mean, some of the people in the in the boarding house said that she did yeah. that she seemed depressive and 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 so I you know I I don't want to I certainly don't want to besmirch the, her reputation or anything like that. I say that it, we are so far removed from it, and, and as you look at the evidence, I mean, it's if you don't have real good compelling evidence that the person was murdered, it's awfully hard to make yeah. a murder case. And 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 I think that it was at least you know. Yeah, reasonable doubt. Even if the coroner's matter. inquest could find something, mm-hmm. I mean, this body had been in the street, and so yeah, by the time they find it, you know, it, it's, it was in a well for a long time. It was pulled out, it was left on the street to decompose while people. Yeah, it's hard by, to imagine that even you... today, unless there was something really clear, that we would be certain and certain if any if anything happened after death. I mean, it might be difficult for us mm-hmm. to tell, you know, right mm-hmm. around death, which happened first, what happened. Uh, it would be interesting to see. I mean, if someone wanted to do some sort of documentary channel where you took cases like this and you brought in crime scene experts today and say what could we have done different what would we yeah. have done differently and what might we have found uh, on some of these trials of the century where you were you know where it's, it's really not clear and you see that on the very famous ones you know things like uh, uh, jack the ripper or hh holmes stuff like that yeah uh, but uh, i you know i have never seen anybody come here to say i'm a modern you know csi guy and uh, and this is what we could have done differently that that maybe either could have made this case more strongly or could have identified if there's some alternative theory or something like that. It's, yeah. it's interesting to say. But, I mean, all we have is the history. And the history is, even at the time, this was very controversial, and it left a big question mark. We we thought we knew who did it, but we didn't really have the proof that they did it. And yeah. if they didn't do it, we don't know who else would have done it. And uh, and if they did do it, we don't, you know, where what where would we have found what was necessary yeah. to take the step to and it's, actually send them. It's, I mean, it's impossible now for us to really... Unless we found something really dramatic, like uh, we find Levi's journal and it says <laughs> that he did it, yeah. Uh, the, the... yeah, I don't think I don't think new evidence is going to come apart in this case. But I mean, there are there are people. I mean, there are some fairly cold cases where people go and, and check through the record and yeah. they find some things. So, so I I don't think here we can do anything you know much more in terms of evidence that we could talk about. You know what? Because it's not like you. It's not like the scarf is in a box somewhere the muff is in a box somewhere and you know we can pull it out of the cold case files and find it oh he's still dna on here or something yeah, i don't like think that. anyone's kept any of the evidence yeah it's not going to happen and we have some of those cases sometimes those are you know those are interesting cases we've talked about a few of those cases on the channel uh and there's reasons i mean there's reasons that true crime is interesting and one of the reasons that true crime is interesting is because it creates a mystery and a desire for justice uh, and so it's compelling to watch because you're you know you're you're trying to help You'll figure out the mystery in order to achieve some sort of justice. So it could be that someone will, you know, just read through the trial transcript and come up with some sort of alternative theory based on, you know, how pieces come together. You see that happen sometime. Yeah. But really, it's just up to all of us to say, huh, well, this is what I've heard. You know, do I, Yeah. you know, do I think she she did it? I hate to bring up the Tiger King, but I mean, go ask someone if Carol Baskin off her husband and, and you'll get quite a discussion these days. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's the <laughs> on similar evidence. So I don't, don't want to express an opinion there. I just want to say that we still we still have points here where people will sit and disagree over right, something very similar to what happened here. And somebody's definitely dead, but we're not real sure how how that happened. Yeah, yeah we don't we don't know how. And so it you know, just leads us to, you know, make this assumption. Do we you know, what do we what do we think of them? Um, it is. I mean, it's tragic because clearly. Julie Elma Sands, from her perspective, I mean, her reputation was ruined. And later later reports, I mean, even you'll read some stuff now that'll talk about it, and they'll call her a prostitute. And mm-hmm. it's fairly clear that she wasn't that. And it's I don't I also don't want to mm-hmm. sit here because I think there I think there's a way for us to be like to to paint her as too sympathetic a victim because uh, we don't know really what was going on we have very little evidence we've only got essentially what was said by you know a handful of people and they were not all necessarily the most objective of sources and mm-hmm. we've also got some people who were saying fairly negative things about about what she was doing but it yeah. does she definitely seem had you know people with different opinions of her in the boarding house there and, yeah uh, and you know rarely is someone you know uh that simple i mean yeah. that's straightforward so you know whether she was uh just one of several that he was dating and that she was overstanding what the relationship was and that yeah. she was seeing other people one of those who could have been a a suspect uh or whether she was you know uh, just a sweet girl who was totally in the thrall of this man and completely believed that they were getting off to get engaged uh it, you know how how do we try to even measure that today too yeah. so the benefit of the doubt i would give her is that she certainly seems to have been the victim of foul play and justice was never served on that yeah and and we'll probably never know and you talked about you know us making our own calls 
uh, and kind of understanding, you know, what we're, we just look at the evidence and all we can do is be like, well, this is what I think. Do you have any opinion on who the murderer might have been? Do you think maybe Weeks, do you think that Weeks <laughs> did it? I mean, we've kind of talked about what the evidence looks like. I think if you look at the whole trial, uh, that it certainly sounds like it was uh, uh, either Levi or, or the machination of his brother. Uh, and in that just there's just no other real clear, you know, alternative. But I can say looking at the trial and with the research that we did in, in producing the episode, uh, I, I think that the jury was right, that there's reasonable doubt that enough evidence was presented to be able to prove that. Yeah. Uh, and so what's what's the alternative? I, you know, I don't know. And he said, I guess it's possible that she that he rejected her and she threw herself down the well or they had a fight and then she left. That was what he said. They had a fight and, you know, he, he left and, and went to his brother's house and assumed that she'd come home. Certainly, you know, the alternative there is that that was entirely a lie on his part and that he was trying to cover up his tracks when he did that. And so I, I, I if, if I had to go with my instinct, I, yeah, he probably did it. If I had to go as a juror saying, I'm going to send him to prison forever on the evidence that we have, I would have to say that I, I think there's reasonable doubt. And I, you know, I guess that's, that's where it stands. And I, I, I'm not going to go writing a book about who, who I think murdered Julia. I just don't. There's true crime people who yeah. love to do that sort of thing. It's we we tell the history, and as the history, I think it's really compelling, interesting history, both in terms of you know what happened, the crime itself, but also in terms of the, the you know the politics of the trial and the people involved in the trial. I'm just a fascinating bit of history. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history, and if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy, History Deserves to be Remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from The History Guy himself on Cameo. 